Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans as we continue a series of messages throughout this glorious book. And today we are in chapter 5 and verse 12. And we're going to slow our roll a little bit going through Romans because this is a very dense and thick and complicated passage of Scripture, especially for Western individualists to grasp. Um, if you are a person who thrives on individualism, uh, you're going to be challenged today because the Bible's going to address something that is a little bit foreign to that mindset. And I can understand your struggle. The first time I ever rem remembered reading this passage and even beginning to understand it, I was pretty, uh, uh, pretty ticked off about it. I thought, how unfair can you be? And you say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let's see. Now, today, if we cover point one, we will be fortunate. So I'm just preparing for those of you who love to see the outline get all the way done not happening today. I can be like that myself, so I'm sympathetic to your cause. But hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we open your word, we do so with humility and expectation, recognizing that it is your word. 
and it's truth, and it's inspired. It is without error, error in its original autographs, and it is infallible. It's something we need to hear, something we need to dwell in and have dwell in us. So we pray today that the preaching of the word will accomplish your purposes. Uh, we thank you that preaching the word uh, will not return to you void, but will prosper where you send it and accomplish the things that you desire. And so we pray today that your word would work in our midst by the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I've already said, this is a very dense passage. For example, in verse 12, Paul does not finish the sentence until he gets to verse 18. And so he has a parenthesis in his thought, and then in the parenthesis, he has another parenthesis in his thought. So Paul would never pass an essay test for a good English teacher. But Paul's not concerned with passing a test for an English teacher. Paul is deeply concerned here to communicate to us, we have a relationship to two men in history. One's name is Adam, and the other's name is Jesus Christ. And what these two men did affects everybody who is related to them. And so Paul is going to great lengths to teach us something very important about the nature of the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is this. There is something called the doctrine of imputation. And it has to do with God imputing to us what either Adam has done or, if you believe, what Christ has done. And so Paul is still thinking about the doctrine of justification. He's still thinking here a lot about how to communicate that to people because his audience included some Jews who believed that practicing the Torah was the only way you could overcome sin and be righteous. And so Paul is still in the back of his mind dealing with that objection, which he will deal with thoroughly in the next succeeding chapters. But in terms of context, Paul has already elaborated on the benefits of justification by faith. And so, the themes of grace and righteousness and life are developed for us in verses 1 through 11, and the extraordinary outcome of Jesus' obedience is compared with the effects of Adam's disobedience. Redemption is portrayed in terms of moving from the sphere of Adam to the sphere of Christ. Paul's conclusion in verse 21 serves as a transition to the next chapter. And so the opening statement, just as sin entered the world and through one man and death through sin, is not completed, as I mentioned, until verse 18. So this is a passage that calls for a great deal of patience and a great deal of time to walk through, but I promise you on the other side is one of the greatest blessings you will ever know in life. And so it is in every way an amazing text of Scripture for us. Now, one of the things that I think is without debate is that we live in a radically individualistic culture. We regularly hear talking heads uh, cite for us the creed and cult of individualism. And uh, this country was founded on the principle 
many would say, of rugged individualism. The idea not only permeates our and dominates our political culture, but also our social culture. It runs rampant, especially upon social media. Now people have websites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving a few important ones out because I'm a dinosaur, but I do know about these. And these are devoted to promoting themselves and their own ideas and their own following and the cult of personality reigns supreme. I ran into someone the other day and I asked them what they did for a living and they said they are a, a cultural influencer. And I said, well, that sounds really important. Tell me how you influence culture. I have a website and I do all this stuff and I'm a cultural influencer. And I thought to myself, dream on. But anyway, I didn't say it because I'm a nice person, but I thought it. Anyway, that is the kind of world we live in. Not to be outdone by the tech-savvy generation, others express their individualism in another way. People young and old have grown up and moved away from home and established their own unique identity and existence apart from their families. This is a relatively new thing when you consider history in totality. In non-Western cultures, however, this is not the case. It's quite common to find multiple generations living under one roof. We are one of the few cultures that has retirement homes. Uh, other cultures do not have retirement homes because they see it as the responsibility of the family to take care of elderly family members. And so in our highly individualistic nature of American culture, it is reflected even upon the way we do evangelism and ask questions. If you were to die tonight and stand before the throne of God, why should he let you into his kingdom? That question suggests that we will all stand before God and his throne as individuals. This sometimes inadvertently conveys the idea that we are accountable for our personal sins. Now, while that is true, and I support it, it is not the only relationship in which we will stand before the throne of God. We will stand before God's throne not only as individuals, but also as represented by one of two men. As represented by one of two men. Either the first or the last, Adam. We must recognize that we are both individuals and part of a corporate body. This is an important truth contained in this particular passage of Scripture. God looks at things different ways. And this is going to give us an insight into how God sees humanity. We are related to either the first Adam or the last Adam. We are all related to the first Adam. We will only be related to the last Adam by faith in the gospel. And so we must recognize that we are both individuals and part of a corporate body. Paul spent much of Romans 3:20 to 5:11 dealing with the matter that would lead some to believe that the apostle has only individuals in mind. Individuals place their God-given but nevertheless personal faith in Christ to receive their justified status. But Paul 
makes explicit what has been implicit throughout Romans. His he points to the individual's corporate identity, which can only be connected either to the first or last Adam. Understanding the individual corporate identity that all human beings possess is vital to comprehend Paul's doctrine of sin and justification in his greater understanding of salvation. If we do not understand what it means for us to have been related to the first federal head or covenantal head, Adam, we will never understand the joy of what it means to be connected to the second item, Adam, the one which was a type uh, of the first, the second Adam is, uh, excuse me, the first is a type of the second. See, I'm getting confused already and I just got started. But here's the point. These two men stand as representatives of humanity. They represented us. They stood in a position of federal headship and of covenantal um, responsibility before the face of God. And so we are related, as it were, to both. Now, R.C. Sproul, as many of you know, one of my favorite theologians, said there's so much in this text that keeps theologians busy studying and arguing. And it's one of the most important texts in the Bible because it talks about the fall of the entire human race through the one man, Adam. One man, Adam, brought sin. With sin came death which came on the whole human race because all have sinned, but not up to the similitude of Adam's sin. Even babies sometimes live only a few hours. Death is the penalty for sin. Without sin, there can be no death, and without the law, there can be no sin. Death was in the world before God gave the law through Moses. Since Adam's fall, all creatures have died because all have sinned, and they sinned before the law of Moses was given. There can be no sin unless there is law, because sin is defined as the transgression of God's law. If there is no law, there can be no foul. But if there is a law, then penalty is incurred when that law is broken. Since the penalty for sin is death, and since death reigned from Adam to Moses, then there is a sense in which everybody in the world somehow broke the law in Adam. That is the point here in Romans 5. That in some way, and I'll try to explain the way I think it best is to be understood, we were in Adam. We sinned when Adam sinned as our representative. And I know that's hard for people to swallow. And there are many, many debates throughout Christendom regarding these many positions that people hold. For example, there's something called realism and something called federalism and something, uh, even Jonathan Edwards had a, a really little bit of an odd idea. You know, smart people can get crazy once in a while. And uh, I know, but it, there you go. So, given that, let's talk about what it means in verse 12 to say that all have sinned in Adam. Some may wonder about the connection between the universal sinfulness of man and the doctrine of justification. Paul's chief subject 
since Romans 3.20. For example, how is it possible that mankind is universally sinful, as Paul tells us in Romans 3? Moreover, why has no one escaped the reach of sin? This is the very doctrine that Paul takes up in this portion of Romans 5. He shows how Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers and how Adam's sin has been imputed to all people. That's what he's saying. That's what he's making clear. And that's why people died, uh, even when there was no law pre-Moses, why they died. Because somehow they were connected to Adam, and therefore they died as a result of their participation in his sin. And that is what Paul means when he writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Hmm. How is it possible that all sinned because one man, namely Adam, sinned? Many pointedly, some might ask, or more pointedly, some may ask, how can I be held personally responsible for Adam's sin when I wasn't even present in the garden, let alone even born? How can you hold me personally responsible for something I didn't do, something that I didn't agree with, something that I wasn't even present at the moment that it occurred? And that's when the little Adam in us comes out. And we'll have to talk about that. We must recognize that Adam was our representative who acted on our behalf. That is what Paul is saying here. Historically, Reformed theologians have explained the relationship in terms of federalism or the doctrine of the covenants. Adam did not act alone, but was the universal, covenantal representative of all humanity. Just as when a politician represents people who elected him and acts on their behalf of his constituents, God chose and created Adam to act on our behalf. The chief part of this covenantal relationship is the doctrine of imputation. Remember Paul's statement that we receive the righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience through imputation. God accredits or accounts Christ's righteousness to believers by faith alone. So since I have trusted in Christ, since you have trusted in Christ, it is as real to say that I have his righteousness as it is real to say I have Adam's sin. And so what Paul is saying is this is the way God deals with humanity and that's why the gospel is such incredibly good news. Now stay with me, it's going to require a little concentration. If you're on your phone surfing the internet, stop. Look up here. This is lifetime stuff for you. I have to say that. Because I know who you are, your own t film, every one of you, there are cameras everywhere. No, I'm teasing, but not really. All right. Now. It is important for us to understand that the righteousness that was imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, but raised again for our justification. When, uh, by the way, we were absent at the cross, 
When Christ paid the penalty for sin and when he perfectly obeyed God's law and yet God imputes his righteousness to all who believe, likewise we were absent in the garden when Adam sinned. Yet God imputes Adam's sin and guilt to all mankind. This is the nature of the federal and covenantal relationship. It's hard for Western individualists to grasp this. But this is the nature of the federal and covenantal relationship that we share with Adam and Christ. If we deny our sinful connection to Adam, then by irresistible logic, we must deny our connection to Christ. You can't have it both ways. You either get your sin from Adam or you're constituted as a sinner because of what Adam did in the garden as your representative, or you can't say that you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you in the gospel. Both have to do with two covenant heads or federal representatives for us. Now, Paul further elaborates his point by following two verses in the following two verses. Follow with me. For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to, to come. Paul proves his point regarding the imputation of Adam's sin by surveying the landscape of redemptive history and dividing it into three sections or segments. First, there's Adam. Second, there's a time from Adam to Moses. And finally, there's Moses to the present day. That's how Paul's looking at this doctrine in terms of time and space. It's easy to understand why Adam died and why people after the revelation of Moses' law died. They all transgressed expressly revealed commandments of God. God explicitly told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest God punish him with death. And Israel, like Adam, in his state in the garden received expressly revealed commands from God who threatened them with death for violating his law. But what about the people who lived and died between Adam and Moses? On what basis did they die when God had not revealed his commands or laws to them as he did to Adam and Israel? That's the conundrum Paul is trying to solve here. He's saying if you say that you're only a sinner because you violate God's law, that your sin has nothing to do with Adam representing you in the garden, then how do you explain people dying between the time of Adam and Moses? And that's a long time and a lot of people. How do you explain that? And Paul is saying the only logical, reasonable, biblical, true explanation is that God imputed Adam's act to you. You became a sinner by virtue of what Adam did in the garden. He threw the whole race into sin. One of the more interesting ways that people have tried to understand this is talking about Melchizedek, the high priest from Salem, who Hebrews talks about as well, that Christ is the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek because he was born of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. And so there's all this dispute, but you'll notice that in Hebrews, he argues that Adam paid tithes 
to Melchizedek in Genesis. And that all believers are in the loins of Abraham, so to speak. He's the father of the faithful. Therefore, his act of recognizing that is recognizing the priesthood of Christ. Now, I don't think that's what Paul's saying about Adam. What I think Paul is saying about Adam is not that view, which is called realism, but rather the federal view that, that Adam represented us. Now, if you want to get all upset about Adam representing you, let me cue you in to a few things or clue you in to a few things. Number one, if there had been an election <laughs> to vote on who's going to represent us, it had been a thousand percent to nothing. Adam would have been the guy. I mean, get this. He has no sin nature. Adam is made in the image of God, holy, upright, righteous, absolutely uh, magnifying and reflecting the glory of God in all of his ways. He would have been the most beautiful creature you have ever seen, only surpassed by Eve, I suppose. But both beautiful creatures. And yet, we argue and get upset. Number one, Adam was perfect. He had no sin nature inside like we do. Number two, he lived in a perfect environment. I once heard R.C. Sproul in class say, if you could ever explain to me why Adam sinned, I'll sit down and let you teach. <laughs> why did he sin? He didn't need anything. And if he had continued in his obedience to the Lord, if he had not partaken of that fruit, and if he had lived and obeyed the Lord, he would have obeyed the Lord for all of his seed as a representative, and then we could have skipped the fall, we could have skipped the cross, but that wasn't God's way. He did fall, he did sin, and it affected every single one of us. Here's a question I often ask people who don't like the doctrine of sin. I don't like it either, but it's true. And he's, I ask people, who taught you how to lie? I mean, did your mother, when you were old enough to listen and read, say, let's go through the doctrine of lying, and I'm going to teach you how to deceive, how to lie, how to distort, how to create fantasy rather than reality. I'm gonna, nobody taught us that. How do we know how to do that? Because we're born in sin. We live in the realm of Adam and until we are transferred from the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ we will pay exactly what Adam paid. Not only death for sin but in the book of Revelation the second death which is to perish for eternity. So it's important that you listen to what uh, Paul is arguing here. It is profoundly important. And so, the most uh, striking thing here is, it's easy to understand why Adam died, while people after the revelation of Moses died. They all transgressed the revealed commandments of God. God explicitly told Adam not to eat of the tree. We know all of that. The answer comes from the doctrine of imputation. Death reigned, Paul writes, from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. The inhabitants of the Adam to Moses gap died even though they did not transgress expressly revealed commands of God like Adam. 
But if they suffered the consequences of violating the law, namely death, then God must somehow credit Adam's first sin to all people. God therefore punishes all people as if they disobeyed his revealed law even though they did not personally do so. In short, God imputes Adam's guilt to all humanity. Adam is a universal, federal, and covenantal head for the entire human race. Now, there are only two federal and covenantal heads, Adam and Christ. There are no others. Let me say that clearly. Now, Paul begins to compare the two Adams. As we look back at Adam, we would undoubtedly become bereft of all hope were it not for the closing line of Romans 5.14 in which Paul writes, Adam is a type of him who was to come. In other words, Adam foreshadows another federal covenantal head. And that covenantal federal head that Adam points to and foreshadows is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same kind of person in the sense that he represents a people. He represents all who believe. Now, Paul will develop the uh, contradistinctive work of Christ in the verses that follow Romans 5, 15 to 21, which we will cover next week. For the time being, we must understand that Adam is the federal head, the chosen representative by God for all humanity, and Christ is the federal head for his people, that is, for all who believe in him. Those who are in Adam receive his imputed sin and guilt, and those who are in Christ receive his imputed righteousness because he is the last Adam as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Quite simply, for as, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The relationship between the work of the two Adams appears when Paul identifies the first Adam as the type of the one who is to come, the last Adam, Jesus. Adam foreshadows Christ. We understand the connection between the first and the last Adam as well as the concept of federal headship. If we do not grasp these two concepts, we will be unable to make much sense of the verses that follow and even in the rest of this chapter. We must realize that God first gave Adam the opportunity to secure a permanent place before him. Recall God's presence in the garden in Genesis 3, 8. God gave Adam and Eve the tree of life and told them to obey. Their obedience would have permanently secured their residence in his benevolent presence for them, themselves and their children and their children's children. Adam had to refrain from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over uh, the earth. Had Adam obeyed these commands, he would have brought about the consummation of the kingdom of God. As God's vice regent, Adam would have filled the earth with his children, all of whom bore the unsullied image of God, as it were, and he would have extended the garden order of God's first dwelling place throughout the entire world. The garden as the sanctuary of God's presence would have expanded throughout the whole world, which will happen in another way. That's for another sermon. 
Indeed, Adam ate from the tree, and through his act of disobedience, he unleashed and ushered in the reign of sin and death, not the kingdom of God. Through Adam's disobedience, death has ascended the throne in this world, and now with sovereign authority, it uses its power with terrifying effects. Adam, though created in the very image of God, a reflection of his holiness, righteousness, and purity, and creativity, pursued his own will rather than the will of his creator. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the idea that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would be like God. Paul recounts the accomplished work of the first Adam. Therefore, as just through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. By the way, death is not part of the natural order of things. I hear that all the time now. People don't want to do away the concept of sin and the connection of sin and death and Adam and all of that, and they just say, well, death's just part of the natural order. That's the way things evolved. That's the way things happen. No! Death is an intruder. Death happened because Adam sinned, and once Adam's sin unleashed upon this world and our existence is a power called sin. Often Paul will personify sin as a person, a power that reigns. And death is still around. Death has not been done away with until the consummation of all things. But death is not the natural, it is unnatural for people to die. It is an intruder, it is a disruptor, it is a crusher, it is no respecter of persons. About the only thing George Bernard Shaw ever said that I agree with is the statistics on death are quite impressive. Every one out of one uh, people die. One out of one, one out of everybody die. They all die. And that's impressive. And so, remember where that came from. Anders Nygren, a Lutheran commentator in Romans, says the following. Ever since Adam, the fate of the race has been to live in thraldom to the powers of destruction. When man lives in sin, he deludes himself with the belief that he himself is in control. By the way, you don't do sin, sin does you every single time. That he's free and can choose sin in one moment and good in another. But in reality, the sin which he commits is evidence that sin is the master and man is the slave. So also to death, man would save his own life. He's always looking out for himself. But all that he does still serves death. Death is the winner. Death is the sovereign who rules over man's whole existence. Such is the common lot of man since Adam. But the Lord Jesus has taken the sting out of death because the sting of death is the law and he removed law's condemnation for us by taking the condemnation upon himself. That was my addition. The total contrast to the actions of the last Adam is Jesus Christ. Remember the fact that Paul identifies Adam as a type of the one who is to come which means Adam points forward to Christ. He prefigures Christ. This means that God intentionally designed and divinely ordained similarities between Adam and Christ. Just as Adam is the federal head or representative of humanity, so too Christ is the federal head of the church, his body. 
God made Adam in his image, a reflection of his being and attributes. Christ, in similar fashion, is not merely the reflection of God, but the uncreated, eternal image of God himself. Remember what Jesus told his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul elsewhere tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And just as Adam was given a task by the Father, so was Christ, though his work was much more difficult than refraining from the fruit in the garden. God told Adam to obey his command that he might merit eternal life. Likewise, the Father commanded the Son to redeem his bride through obedience to the Father's will. Yet the similarities between Christ and Adam melt away and reveal prominent dissimilarities. Adam's task was simple. Have children. Extend the garden order throughout the creation. Refrain from eating of the tree of knowledge. Christ, however, was perfectly obedient to the entirety of God's law, which according to rabbinic tra tradition includes 613 commands. Adam's probation took place in paradise, whereas the pinnacle of Christ's test of obedience took place in the wilderness, the wasteland, the haunt, haunt of wild animals. Adam was satiated and lacked nothing because God provided for every one of his needs. He had every tree in the garden, indeed every animal and plant for his disposal. Christ was hungry and thirsty. He had not eaten for 40 days. Satan tempted Christ with the very same temptation as he tempted Adam to abandon the commandment of God and establish his place of authority on his own terms. Yet despite his hunger, Despite his suffering, despite the ease with which he could have complied with Satan's temptation, he said no. Paul wonderfully and succinctly captures the parallels between the first and the last Adam in the epistle to the Philippians. Listen, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice that Paul says that Christ did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Robbery involves taking hold of that which does not belong to you. Adam did consider it robbery to be equal with God when he heeded Satan's counsel and lawlessly took the forbidden fruit to become like God. Adam did not even have to be obedient to the point of de death, yet Christ was obedient to this extent. Adam's federal headship required no condescension, no humility, where Christ stooped from his heavenly throne to be the federal head for his people. The one of whom it was said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the one whose train of his robe filled the temple and drove the prophet Isaiah to fear him and come completely unglued condescended to be born under the law and placed in an animal feeding trough. We're getting close to the end, so take a breath. For me. <laughs> he condescended to the depths of suffering and was obedient to death. The king of glory cried out from his derelict estate, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and he ignominiously hung upon the cross. The implication of the dissimilarities between the first and the last Adam is ultimately the difference between heaven and hell. So many people believe they will stand before God's throne as individuals on the day of judgment, and to a certain extent this is true. We will, as Christ tells us, have to account for every idle word we have spoken. Yet this is not the only relationship in which we will stand. As this passage of Scripture clearly teaches, we stand in solidarity under the representative of either one of the two men, either the first or the last Adam. Even if a person were to live a perfect life, if that were possible, he'd still have to bear the guilt of Adam's sin. The fact that he dies is evidence of this. We are mortal, not because we are finite, but because of Adam's sin. He broke the covenant of works. If Adam is our representative, then we will bear the full penalty of his broken covenant of works. God told Adam that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge, he would die. Those allied with Adam would not only die once, but also suffer the second death, which is eternal banishment from the presence of God, suffering forever in hell. Conversely, those allied with the last Adam will not uh, suffer the consequences of the broken covenant of works because Paul elsewhere writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Moreover, those in Christ will one day eat from the tree of life. He has broken the reign of sin and death. Adam ushered in. And for those who are in Christ, the cherubim with their flashing swords will no longer guard the path to the tree of life. And we will no longer dwell east of Eden. We will be in the ultimate sanctuary of God's presence. As Christ tells us in the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the whole point, and I close, of Romans 5, 12 through 14, is that we must abandon any hope that we might somehow fulfill what the law of God requires. We do not stand guilty before the divine bar because we sin. Rather, we stand guilty because of Adam's sin and our own personal sins. We will not stand as individuals before the throne of God on the last day, but as individuals corporately tied to one of two Adams. And there is no other option, biblically speaking. Seeing that Adam even abandoned his own sinking ship and sought the headship of Christ should tell us something. We must therefore abandon our corporate identity in Adam, place our faith in the work of the last Adam Christ, only his work, his perfect fulfillment of the law of God on our behalf, his suffering for the curse of our failure and the law's violations gives us peace with God. Some might argue that they should not be held accountable for Adam's sin because they were absent from the garden. That this, then, means that they cannot receive the righteousness of Christ because they were absent at the cross. If we are in Adam, we will receive the imputed guilt of his sin. If we are in Christ, we will receive his imputed righteousness. Imputed means to place to the account of. He gives it to us as a pure gift to be received in the empty hand of faith. My word to you is to place your trust 
in the only place where your trust will be validated. And that is in the last item, the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, and the wonderful work he has accomplished on our behalf. Christ grants us the access and right to eat from the tree of life so that we may eternally dwell in the presence of our triune covenant Lord. And so as I tell you all of this, it's so simple, but so hard for so many of us to do. And that is, we transfer our trust from anything we can do to fix ourselves, to save ourselves, to make ourselves more acceptable, to remove the stain of guilt and condemnation from our being, and that we cannot do. We turn to trust the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will remove from us the guilt, shame, and sin by taking it upon himself, who took our curse upon himself and shed his blood for it. Why in the world would you want to be hurled out into eternity with no hope? except in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if you've never closed with Christ today, you've never repented of your sin, you've never jumped into the arms of Jesus, as it were, saying, Lord Jesus, save me. Best prayer in the whole Bible, in my opinion, is when Peter is walking on the water, and he's walking, and he's looking right at Jesus, and it's unbelievable. But then a wave comes up. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He sinks, and he cries out what? Lord, save me. You ever done that? Have you ever asked the Lord Jesus to save you? My hope is that you will because it's the only hope we have. And he will run to you if you repent. He's not waiting on you to get your act together. You can't get your act together. He's waiting on you to turn and call out his name and he will embrace you. And he will love, nobody will love you like Jesus. Nobody will ever love you like he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, Romans chapter 5. It is challenging. It is difficult. But if we've somehow stumbled across the truth in the ways in which we try to understand, we pray that you would bring it to bear upon our souls. We need the second Adam. We need Jesus. We've suffered because of the first Adam and his failure. And we need a new Adam. We need the Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus himself is our head and our representative. Now, Father, we pray your blessings upon those who have heard your word today, and we pray that as we think about our relationship with you, we would give with a generous heart because of the grace you have given to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.